I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Well, you're in for a treat with today's guest, Tom Archdeacon, my mentor and dear friend. There are almost as many legendary stories about Arch as the thousands he has written since his career began in the early 70s in Miami, Florida. He's still cranking out award-winning heartfelt columns for the Dayton Daily News, which he joined in 1989, and he's still finding mischief. Arch and I met in 1989 when I worked for the Cincinnati Post. Later, he took me under his wing while we covered three Olympics together. He's a kindred spirit. Tom Archdeacon, welcome to Press Box Access. Have you warned your attorney that you're going to be on this show? <laughs> yeah, we're all set. He's on, uh, he's on retainer. Oh, okay. Well, just, you know, we're going to cover a few things here. <laughs> I will say that I've known you for 30 years. My heart and soul are much enriched. My liver has taken a beating. Um, <laughs> mostly because of uh, Hunter Thompson, and you really relate to the great gonzo journalist. Tell me about the quote that Hunter Thompson, that you always go back to in your career. Uh, it's worked for me for uh, almost 50 years as a sports writer. It's uh, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. And I use that no matter if I was short on sleep, if I uh, had a hangover, if I didn't feel good, if I was panicked, you know, you got to make it happen. So uh, suck it up and do it. And it's worked. Well, it's worked very well. You've had quite the career, 50 years of just unbelievable storytelling, tons of awards and everything you can think of, honors. Um, but I want to start with Muhammad Ali, because when you think about it, Ali, there's no greater athlete in our lifetime. And you know Ali. You know him as a person. You know him as a boxer. Uh, let's start with Ali. Tell me about Muhammad. Well, he was, uh, he's probably, of, of all the athletes I uh, have dealt with, he's one of my favorite, if not the favorite guy, just because of the way he treated I don't care if it was uh, royalty or the guy sweeping the floor at the Fifth Street Gym. He treated him the same. And he just took you on a, some some real adventures. And uh, I had a few with him. And, and I, I just loved the guy. I loved his courage, too. Yeah, very much so, right? I mean, he, yeah. stood, he stood up for what he believed in. Yeah. I know a lot of people have written a lot of words about Ali over the years. I don't know anybody who has actually gone to the circus with Ali. <laughs> You know, I, I worked in Miami, Miami, Florida for a long time. I was a columnist down there. And uh, I'd go over at lunchtime and, and, you know, I'd go to the Fifth Street Gym almost every day. And I'd see the old timers in there. And Ali trained in there uh, and part of the time. And, and I would see him and talk to him. And so one day we were, well, I'd been in there for about a week and we were talking. And the Ringling Brothers Circus always opens in Miami Beach. Uh, they bring the elephants across the causeway and they... Uh, open so he asked me if I want to go to the circus with him <laughs> I went uh, yeah that'd be all right so he comes by they sent a car by uh, the gym I came to the gym picked me up at the gym and in there's his two little daughters I think Layla I mean he's got a bunch of kids but Layla must have been I don't know two three years old and she had another sister Hannah that was maybe a year old or so and so the four of us go to the uh to the circus and we're sitting down kind of, you know, it's indoors at uh, at the convention center in Miami Beach. We're sitting down in kind of the front row, and 
I go out and get us some popcorn. We're sitting there, and Ali, all of a sudden, while I was getting popcorn, I don't didn't know what happened. I come back, and Ali tells me, he says, I'll be right back. And I go, oh, okay. So now I'm there with his two little girls, and five <laughs> minutes turns into ten minutes, and I'm starting to panic, and they're starting to answer on. I'm going, you know, what the hell's going on here? And all of a sudden, the curtain's at the far end part, and there comes an elephant in, and there's who's on the back of the elephant but Ali. And the place goes nuts. And they come over and the little girls are squealing on and and they got a handler in front. And they come over to where we're sitting in the front box and the guy has me hand one one of the little girls over and he puts her down on the ground. The elephant puts his trunk around her and lifts her up and brings her up to Ali. They set the next one up with Ali. And Ali, the little girls are waving goodbye to me and Ali takes off with this. I never saw him again the rest of the night. You know, they, uh, that was, uh, so uh, it, it was, uh, that was going to the circus with Ali. You never know what's going to happen with him. Why didn't you get on the elephant, Tom? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, 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 I don't think that trunk could have picked up, man. <laughs> did, he but, ever uh, pay, did he ever pay you for babysitting? Yeah, no, no. He just, uh, but it was, uh, you know, years later, you know, I covered some Ali fights along the way. A couple, not not a lot, but uh, I covered some, especially his last losses. And and uh, years later, I see Ali at a uh, at a function at a junior college, and uh, he's there, and he's you know walking kind of wobbly and things like this. And he sees me, and he motions over, and his voice was kind of a whisper, and on he motions me to come over, and he goes, "You got old." And I go, well, you're pretty old. You look pretty old yourself. And he goes, yeah, but I'm still pretty. <laughs> and, and then he just said, he still had that little sparkle in his eye. And I just, I just, I liked, you know, the way he, he treated everybody, but the way he stood up, you know, we got some athletes now that are, we're seeing it again, uh, some athletes that are really standing for something and will speak out on matters of social justice and things like that. But that's that, that's what I admired most of him. What so. about as a boxer? You saw him at the tail end of his career, right, in the late 70s. Tell me yeah. about the fight, a couple of the fights. You, you cover, what, four fights, Ali Fodder? Three, three fights. Uh, uh, the uh, When he beat, beat Spinks for the title in, in uh, New Orleans, and uh, which was uh, a grand night. I mean, there was, oh, it was in the Superdome, and there was... Over 60,000 people or something, and it's just a, Joe Frazier sang the national anthem. And, uh, you know, ringside, there's Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta and Liza Minnelli, all these people. And, and Ali comes in, and Ali had been beaten by Spinks uh, seven, eight months before that uh, on a uh, split decision. So he got in there, and uh, he had trained pretty hard for this. And he got in, and he was just kind of like the Ali of old a little bit. He he kind of controlled this young kid. And uh, even there was times I can remember where he broke into the Ali shuffle. And this was, you know, he was in, uh, he must have been 35, 36 years old then. Sphinx was a lot younger, 11, 12 years younger. And he, he, he won a unanimous decision that night. And it was like the whole crowd, it was almost like they just converged on him as he went out of the arena. Just everyone followed him. And it was, uh, it was, and through, I can remember through the fight, Angelo Dundee, who was my friend from Miami, and he started, was he was Ali's trainer, right? Ali's trainer, and he started he started kind of taunting Spinks during the fight, going uh, going. He would yell across the ring, going, 
goodbye, Leon, goodbye, Leon. And, and it just, it was just, and that's what it turned out to be. And, uh, so where that, where were you sitting during the fight that you could hear that you had to be close, right? I was I was close. I was probably in the second row of the of the sports writers, you know. So I was and I was up r- r- real real tight, you know. But I mean, I also talked to Dundee about it afterwards. But th- then I had two. Uh, I covered him one two fights he never should have had I, the the Holmes fight in in Vegas, and, and then uh, the last fight when he fought Trevor Burbick in uh, Nassau Bahamas, and that was just a t- a terrible travesty, you know. Well, boxing is your is your big love. You covered over 200 fights uh, back in the day. You mentioned Leon Spinks. You, you had <laughs> a, a few. Ex- Can you tell us who, for younger folks, who Leon was, what his story was, and, and your experience with Leon Spinks? Well, Leon, Leon Spinks grew up real tough in East St. Louis, and then he won the uh, gold medal in the uh, 76 Olympics. So he was this young but he was a real screw-up, you know. He just, he's a lovable screw-up. All of a sudden, he fights Ali. He's only had six pro fights or something, He and he beats Ali. So all of a sudden, he's cast onto the national Say He was a 10-to-1 underdog at night, and no one thought he would win. He wins the title, and well, everything screws up for him. He gets arrested. He splurges his money. And so one night, he's driving the wrong way in East St. Louis, uh, no lights on his car, no uh, license plate, driving the wrong way on the street, no valid driver's license, and cocaine in his hat band. <laughs> so when the <laughs> cops pull him over, any two of those will get you to jail, all five of those. They got him, he gets arrested, they put him in jail, they bail him out, and they bring him down to Miami. They want to ship him to the Bahamas the next day to just kind of get him away from the press for a week or so till everything cools down. Well, they, br- they bring him into a hotel in Miami late at late at night. And the bell caps I had when I worked down there, a lot of the bell caps at the hotel were my friends and they'd call me up with stories when like celebrities or somebody had come around or something happened. So this oh, guy says, you're Spinks, sly. <laughs> yeah, Spinks, Spinks just uh, checked into the hotel. So I go, all right, man. So I head over quick. It's about almost midnight. Write down my little questions I'm going to a- ask him for. I don't want to go to the front desk because then they'll warn him or, you know, so I just get on the elevator. He told me that he was up in the suite. So I didn't realize there was like 10 suites. So I get up, get out of the elevator, there's like 10 suites. And I go, what the hell do I do now? And I'm starting to walk around and it's dark. And I get about eight doors down. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I hear glasses clinkling and like Barry White coming through the uh, booming out of a boom box to the door and, and women laughing. And I figure that's got to be Leon's room. And the next door is cracked open about three, four inches. And in there sits Sam Solomon, his uh, uh, manager, and he's on the phone talking to somebody. And so I'll be truthful. I lean down and I'm eavesdropping, trying to hear what the hell he's saying. Getting up, trying to figure out what my next plan is. And all of a sudden the door opens behind me. And here stands a guy that you all probably, you know, his name's Lawrence Turo, or as you know him as Mr. T. Mr. T. Mr. T. He was a uh, bodyguard for hire before he was, uh, uh, you know, Clubber Lang and a half-assed TV personality and all these other things, you know. So hey, hey, Mr. T, he said it, not me. Yeah, yeah. He said, and so he, Mr. T's there, and he goes, uh, I'm bent over, he's dropping, he goes, what are you doing? And I turn around, look over my son, and go, uh, nothing. And he, <laughs> there's a way you can make a 250-pound white guy 
moonwalk like Michael Jackson used to moonwalk. He got his finger in my belt loop and pulls me backwards. I'm like sliding along. All of a sudden, out the door comes like his 300-pound assistant, the two of them. They take me and they throw me into the room where, where Sam Solomon is. Solomon's on the phone. I'm just standing there, and these guys are on both sides of me. And they are, it's like two refrigerators on both sides. And Mr. T's about 5'10". He's not very big. And he's, I can hear behind me, the walls behind me. And there's Leon back there just hollering and music's going and everything. And Mr. T is standing there. He's got like a leather vest on that's got the sleeves cut out. And he's got these biceps that look like cantaloupes. And he can make those babies jump up and down. <laughs> kind of like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can do it with my stomach. I can make my stomach jump. And he, he he's wearing like $5 aftershave lotion and just breathing kind of heavy. So I can smell that. And I'm watching the muscles pop. And I'm hearing Barry White in the background. And I mean, my, you know, I'm panicked. And finally they get off the phone and he goes, what do you want? So I come to talk to Leon. He goes, uh, <laughs> Leon's asleep. I go, what, Mr. T? He goes, well, time to go. And that other guy, yeah, and I had been trying to make conversation with him. They're both wearing sunglasses, midnight, you know, and I'm going, hey, how you guys like Miami? They're, they're not saying a word. They grab me by my belt and throw me in the elevator. I go back to the newspaper and I'm sitting there and they're going, man, all right, get started. I'm, and as you know, I'm one of the slowest writers in the world. And I type with one finger. Well, still, 50 years in, I type with one finger. All those stories have been with one finger. So I get back there and I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to write? My notebook hasn't even been opened. And I'm going, man, I need something. I got to have something. I'm thinking and thinking. All of a sudden I go, you know, there's like 45 minutes left now. I got to get something on the paper. So I write the story I just told you, looking for looking for Leon. I tell about <laughs> Mr. T. I tell about smelling the aftershave, watching the biceps bounce, Barry White. You know, I thought they were going to throw it back at me. Well, they ran it the next day. People loved it. They go, man, it's like it's like we were there. You know, we could smell it, we could hear it. You know, that was fun. And I that's when I realized something real important. Uh, anytime you can put yourself someplace, whether it's a uh, the Olympics or the uh, the Reds clubhouse or your, or uh, Ohio State sidelines, you're going someplace where no one else is. Just put them there. Put them in that scene, you know, and that's a, so I use that as just two little secrets that and you try to put a human face on every story, you know, something, make it, bring it instead of all the facts and figures, just get a, one human face on it. And uh, it works, man. It really works. That's great. I mean, I, I think that really sums up the way you have worked throughout your career. This idea of just telling stories about people. People want to read about people. They don't want to read about things, right? Yeah. You're in the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame. You covered over 200 fights. Um, so you've covered all these major events, Olympics, Super Bowls, Kentucky Derby. You name it, you've covered it. Um, but boxing seems to have a special place in your heart, right? I just, I just love boxing. I, you know, I, I came from... Now, I didn't know anything about boxing coming from Ottaville, Ohio, or even University of Dayton. I would see some fights on TV and all. But once I got down to that little paper in Homestead, Florida, there was a kind of a, a half-assed promoter that was next door that lived in an old hotel, and he had a bag hanging behind. He'd put on little fight shows at his uh, at the armory down there, and uh, he had a bag hanging on a tree behind his house. And, all. and I, I used to just go over there and watch him a little bit. And, and he was the guy, 
that brought opponents up to Miami for Chris Dundee's fights to, at the Fifth Street Gym. That's Angelo's brother, who was the promoter up there. For every fight, you need an opponent, right? And when mm. so Chris Dundee, the Dundees had the up-and-coming guys. They needed a guy they were going to beat. So they got these tough blue-collar guys from down in Homestead, and he, this was the guy that supplied them, and I'd ride up with them every day. And I just saw the courage it took in these guys to get in the ring. I mean, after everybody gets out, it's just you. I mean, just if, you, if you're at home or something, just try holding your hands up for three minutes without anybody hitting you, without a just moving. Well, you got to, you know, uh, if it's a 10-round fight, that's uh, you got to be holding them up for three minutes and somebody's pounding on you the whole time. I just got to, to, to love these guys. I got, I got to admire them, and I got to see some, and, and plus boxers, there's, there was, I cover auto racing in the early days too. And there's just some sports where you just got great access where they didn't have a lot of media around and they so wanted to tell you their story. And in a boxing ring, I mean, it's, it's grip. I've seen good things. I mean, I've seen some bad things. I had a friend killed in the ring once where I was in his corner, you know, and it's just the night of a fight. Yeah, tell a me. A, fight, a big fight in Vegas. Yeah, oh, tell my me about God. that. God, this is like the. Not, not all that. I got that that love of the boxers, right? I got all that too. But then you put it in this setting, like a big fight in Vegas, and I've covered a couple hundred fights probably just in Vegas, you know, and in um, Atlantic City and Madison Square Garden. But Vegas was my favorite, and I. So it's like going to the like when you're going to the circus or the fair or something like that, a circ, uh, fair, I guess, and you go. They always have like the down the center of the, all the freak shows and like the claw lady and the uh, lobster man and all this. That's kind of like the, 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 the fight night. I mean, you got the, you got the movie stars, like I said before, and you got your big name athletes down there. Then you got the pimps and the hookers and all like this that all come in for all the f fights. Then you got all the gamblers. You got all the con men. You got all the, then you got the rabid Fight fans say, uh, like in Miami, they used to really try to have, they'd put like a Puerto Rican kid against a Cuban kid. So you got the people are just passionate, waving their flags, and just, so you got all this emotion, all these, and you got furs and cigars and fake diamonds and real diamonds and all this spectacle around. And then, and and uh, and Joe Frazier singing the national anthem, <laughs> and and uh, all this, and Don King up with his wild hair and all this, and then you got the fighters and the robes and the fancy robes and all, and then comes this this just this two uh, on the on the rawest most uh, basic guttural thing of two guys fighting, and and then it it's just it. There's nothing before the moment before a heavyweight fight. There was nothing. I don't care if it was a NCAA finals, the Super Bowl, anything. Nothing caught me like that moment before a fighter. It was just electric, and I just I, I just fell in love with boxing, and I it's it's still my favorite sport. What, yeah. What were the favorite fights that you covered? Tell me. Oh, I covered. Well, I covered a, a you know I covered a lot of. Tyson fights. I covered a lot of Holmes fights. Uh, Duran, Hagler. Uh, uh, one of my favorite was Hagler and Tommy Hearns was just a wild fight. A lot of Sugar Ray Leonard fights. Uh, um, just 
especially that that era right in there. Aaron Pryor. I guess one of my favorite was Aaron Pryor and uh, Alexis Arguello in the Orange Bowl. You know, they were both became my friends. Yeah. yeah, they became my friends. 82 was the first yeah, sure, fight. Yeah. And then the next they had a fight a year later or, or, uh, in uh, Vegas, uh, a rematch. But that was nothing. The real fight was that night in the Orange Bowl. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Well, you're in Miami during the 70s, and there really was no bigger name in Miami at that time than Don Shula, uh, the great Miami Dolphins uh, coach. Uh, I think 26 seasons, couple Super Bowls. He, he was kind of like a Belichick of his day. Um, <laughs> I mean, he still has more wins than anybody. Um, you show up looking like David Crosby um, <laughs> from a small town. And then here's Shula. Tell me about Don Shula and and what he was like to deal with. He he, he was he was real straight laced then. He was a, a no you know he had everything down. Uh, you know he went to mass every morning. He had a certain way he did it. He had a schedule and he followed that. And he was no you know he didn't care for guys with long hair, guys that you know. And when I showed up and I didn't really know the world of pro football that much, you know. And I, I'd been down there a few times when I worked at the newsleader, but then when I and and the very first time I came and I was still at the newsleader and I showed up and I had been on the field beforehand and I came uh Mercury Morris had taken off his pads and underneath he's got a big T shirt with a big marijuana leaf on it. So I thought And he's one of the players. Yeah, yeah. Mercury Morris was a great running back for him. Uh, uh, and so I talked to him. and So now I go into Shula's. I've never been into after practice. He'd always go into his office, and he'd bring in the writers. Edwin Pope was a, a longtime writer for the Miami Herald down there and uh, would be my rival later when I was at the Miami News. But he, so there's about three or four writers in there, and I come in. This is my first day ever, and Shula doesn't know me from Adam, and I got a Hawaiian shirt on and blue jeans, and my hair was real long then, and... Um, He's going around, each guy gets to ask a question. So I can't think of a question. I, like, panic. I'm in front of Don Shula. I go, hey, what do you think of Mercury Morris's marijuana T-shirt? <laughs> he looks at Edwin Pope and goes, who in the hell is this? And uh, Edwin goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Shula goes, out, get out. So he kicked me out of the front. I didn't know what to say, so I go went and sat outside. I got kicked out of my first press conference from We became great friends. I mean, but I used to, there was a lot of hijinks along the way on my part, not his. But he became, because he's from Ohio. He's a small town. He's a Catholic. He and I grew up a Catholic and all like that. And uh, I remember my mom sent him a rosary once when he was having a losing streak. And he won two or three games then. And it was all of a sudden my parents were like golden with him. They, you mentioned he, he went to mass every day. I mean, so oh, he, he, went was, to he was he, by the book. That's why he was so successful, right? He was yeah, a great he coach had, uh, I mean, because he, he was, was by the book. 
he was by the book. But I mean, he was also just one, one great football coach, but a no nonsense, tough guy, you know. But he had uh, he had a way that you did things, you know, and you didn't, you know, football was football was the whole world. He was consumed by it, you know. He didn't. Don't ask him about a movie or don't ask him about the Christmas light display down the corner or something. He, he doesn't want. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't want to talk about that, and he doesn't think you should be in during his time. I knew underneath that there was another guy in there, and so it was just fun to, after I got to know him a little better, to tweak him a little bit and, and have some fun. Because I covered him every day once later when I got to Miami when I was the columnist, and that was our big beat because back then we didn't have, we had the, the heat hadn't come to town yet. Uh, the Panthers weren't there, you know, so it was just uh, Miami was Hurricanes. Dolphins, yeah. Miami Hurricanes and Miami uh, and Miami Dolphins. And... Uh, so, so what I, would you do? What would you do with Shaw to get under his skin? Well, a little let's bit? see. We're in L.A. They're playing the Rams, and uh, that day I had come down to Shula's office in the afternoon, or in yeah, in the afternoon on a Saturday, and interviewed him in his room. And here's how uh, anal he is. Kind of, he's got next to his bed. There's a like a bench there, and there's his khaki pants as he's going to wear tomorrow, all folded up nice. His, uh, you know, aqua. Uh, polo shirt, his T-shirt, his underwear, his socks, his shoes. There's a uh, ashtray with a rosary in it that he. And there's a little tub with six Heinekens icing down, and it's all <laughs> lined up just Plus like for that. you. <laughs> yeah, no, those he didn't even he didn't make it. So I interview him in his room for. I'm there in there for 45 minutes. We talk, and I, I got this great story and all. So that night I go out on the town late, late with uh, our beat writer was Leo Suarez, a young guy that was my best friend. And we go out and it, it's probably 2.30, we're coming back to the hotel, feeling no pain whatsoever. And back back then on the, on the city streets, they had these little news boxes where it'd be like escort services and strip <laughs> clubs and all like that, little magazines you could get for free, you know, and so. I took one, you know, and I thought, what the hell, this is pretty funny. And you're leafing through all the pages of scantily clad people and uh, XXX videos and peep shows. and all. So I go to Leo. I go, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> so we go down to Shula's room. Now, Shula is a guy that on game night, he goes to bed at like 1030, probably watches like Matlock or something like <laughs> that, and then, then goes to or Columbo and then goes to bed. And so he's got, I go, so Leo's tearing out the pages, each one of the, and I'm kneeling down in front of the door, and I'm, this is like probably three in the morning now, or 3.30, <laughs> and I'm taking, each, I go, oh, that's a good one, and I'm sticking it under the door, another naked picture, and stick, I've got, I've put about five or six of them under there, and as Leo's, we're tittering and laughing, all of a sudden, I like lose my balance, and I fly forward with my forehead and slam right into the door. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the door opens, and there stands Dan, Don Shula in his underwear and undershorts, just <laughs> seething with a handful of these naked pictures going, what the hell are you doing? And I, I'm down on my hands and knees, and I look up, and I go, oh, wrong room. <laughs> 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 so, so the next morning back then, the, the 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 player or the media rode with the the team on the team bus to the stadium. I just happened to get on the elevator at the team hotel at the same time Shula was on the elevator. Now he sees me get on the elevator, and I've had like I don't know three and a half hours sleep or something. And he looks, and I can see he's just like 
itching just, and finally he says to me, he says, he sidles up to me as we're coming, you know, we're 20 some floors up and coming down. He goes, can I ask you one thing? And I go, yeah. He goes, do you even like football? <laughs> and I go, eh, not really. I'm just kind of here for the party, you know, and, uh, and uh, that wasn't true. I like football, but he, he just, and that kind of sums up our, our r- relationship. You know, we had, and we, but we had other times where we, uh, you know, real serious talks about whether it was players that were having troubles mm-hmm. or, or things in his life, or even his, his young son, Dave was, uh, like a seventh grader there when, when, uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah it was, well, uh, I can only see the, uh, the, you know, the greatest NFL coach of his era standing there looking down at you and you're on the floor holding, <laughs> which, <laughs> holding those uh, photos that you were putting under his uh, doorway. Great moment. <laughs> well, Don Shula should got a gold medal for hanging out with you. Let's shift gears. Let's go to the Olympics. How many Olympics did you cover, Tom? Give me a favorite moment. I covered... Uh... 12 Olympic Games, but it's counting winter and, and summer. And, uh, I mean, I was there for, like, big events. Uh, ben Jones testing positive. And, you mean Ben, ben Johnson? I mean, Ben Johnson and uh, 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 Harding and Kerrigan, their, their uh, whole soap opera, and, and all, all kinds of different things. But I'll tell you one that was – it was uh, the Sydney Olympics <laughs> – in 2000, I think it's the Sydney Olympics. Was it 2000? Was that when Gloria Lozzi ran in for the the uh, hurdles of? Uh, yeah, she was a Nigerian hurdler, and uh, 100 100 meter hurdles. Her, she was going to get married to this guy uh, Hygienius, who who just loved her. He was another right. athlete, and he uh, he got there ahead of her. She was going to compete a little bit in Japan or something. Now she's a tiny; she's got to be four foot eleven or something like that. And a hundred hurdles are a brutal race, you know, for especially somebody that small. He got there ahead of her. He got hit by. He was getting donuts or something for some other athletes. He came across the street. There was a bus there. The bus driver weighs him out. He forgets they drive on the other side of the street. He steps out and he's hit and killed. She flies in, gets off the plane. Uh, where's Hygienius? Because he'd meet her at every at the airport with flowers and he'd give her Bible verse and tell her he loved her. And he wasn't there and they tell her he's been hit and killed. He's in the morgue. You know, she goes to the athlete's village. She's supposed to compete in a hundred. Uh, high hurdles. She doesn't, won't get out of her room in the athlete's village. They have to go in and she curls up in like the fetal position in her bed. They go and they try to get her to eat. She won't eat. She won't come to practice. She won't do anything. They figure she's not going to run at all. She's done. They can't get her to do anything. She's just crushed. They go to the day of her first heat. They go, they take the athlete's bus. She's still back in the room. All of a sudden a cab shows up. She's gets out. She gets Goes to the stadium, comes in, wins her heat. Same thing next day when she goes to the finals. All of a sudden, the story of Gloria Lozzi starting to people are starting to hear it a little bit. She runs the hurdles that day and she leads for nine hurdles and loses to some other woman. Finishes, she gets a silver medal. When the meet ends, you know they usually take the winner goes around the track and and the whole stadium applauds them. All the other women came to her. They put their arms kind of around her, and he took her around the stadium, slowly around the stadium. And however many people was in that stadium, 100,000 or whatever it is, stood and applauded her. 
and there wasn't a dry eye in the place. And Gloria Lozzi eventually flies home with her silver medal and her hygienist in a casket. And that was uh, uh, that was a pretty that's a, a, a gripping moment. You know, I was there for the uh, the bombing in Atlanta as well, and we had two guys from the Dayton area that were caught in the bombs and hurt very badly. So right when it happened, I'm trying to think like, man, you know, like they weren't exactly allowing press to go in and talk right. to anybody. So I get a cab driver, and I'm talking to the cab driver. This is luck. I mean, this is where, like, I used up, if you got to pay, like, so many dues to get in heaven, well, I just used a bunch of them right here. This guy goes, uh, yeah, my uh, <laughs> sister works on the cleaning crew at the hospital. I go, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. So I convince him to introduce me to his sister, who takes me in with her in the cleaning crew, and I come into the hospital and work my way up to the, this is probably, uh, it shouldn't be in a journalism manual, I guess, but I work my way up to the room of the guy from, one of the guys from Dayton. Now, you know, this bombing is happening. The only way we found out that a guy from here was hurt was because they had contacted his family. His family, next door lived somebody from our paper. They called our paper. They called me and said, hey, there was a guy from here. All I had was his name. I found where he was. And, you know, this wasn't a lie. I mean, I said, I'm from Dayton. He's been hurt, and I'm from Dayton. I didn't say I'm a sports writer from Dayton. I go up to his room, and uh, at first, though, once I got there, I realized I'm not a sports writer now. I got to just be a regular, you know, where this guy's unconscious and all. And I kind of just sit there with him and just like, I'm the only guy from home. Nobody's got there yet. And, and I sit there with him and talk with him. And that day I leave, I don't do anything. The next day I come back. Now I've gotten it worked out where I've gotten a pass because, you know, I'm the guy from Dayton that's right, here. With right. the, the next day I come there and when he wakes up, <laughs> he goes, He's a sports fan, right? He goes, hey, Tom Archdeacon, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a good story. It's a, and we've stayed friends since, you know. But there's times where you just, I've also learned where you do, I'll never lie to somebody once they get, I mean, especially not to anybody I'm writing about or anything like that. You know who I am. I'm not going to ever, like, pretend I'm not somebody I Right. You know, maybe to get access somewhere, I'll do what I can to get in. But I can remember I covered 9-11 for our paper for a long time, uh, like three weeks almost. Well, we got a photographer and I got right down to ground zero when, when they were holding all the rest of the media back in a holding pen. You know, mm. we, I just came. In. But once we got down there, I realized, well, put the notebook and the camera away right now. They were still trying to get dig people out of the what they thought was still the, you know, this was a day, day and a half later. Uh, the rubble, you know, not, you just had wow. to be a, uh, 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 another person trying to help at first. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then you can be a journalist after that. And, and once I got down there, I would take out my pass, you know, you got to take out your passes. People got to know. So I got to do all these different things. And you know what? You can't. I, I read this someplace too. I, I don't think this was Hunter Thompson, but the thing—it still juices me up. Now I'm 70 years old. I just, and I'm as juiced up on sometimes when I get a good story. Now, I mean, I get tired or a lot easier. But when I get, as I was when I was 25, th they say it's like like a kid at Christmas. You know, you you come down and 
if you celebrate Christmas, you come down underneath the tree or something, you're looking for a package under there that's got your name on it, you know, and you're, you're pulling off the fancy little ribbon and the fancy paper. And when you're a young person, you know, you're hoping it's not like underwear or socks. <laughs> and now you get my age, underwear is a pretty damn good gift, you know, but, you know, but you're, you're pulling, but that, that moment before you open it up, that's that surprise that juices you up. You know, when you're pulling a paper off, you go, you got a, a gift from Santa Claus or a gift from your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is. What is it? What is it? Well, that's what this job is. Every day is a different person, a different situation. They're black, they're white, they're rich, they're poor, they're country, they're city, they're Miami, they're Ottaville, Ohio, they're Dayton. And that's the fun part. Every day something different. And it's that surprise, looking for that surprise every day. That's that's the fun part of it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, and well, as we wrap this up, you, you, you're still doing it. That's what's amazing to me. You're still cranking out great columns, stories. Nobody tells a story about, you know, everyday Joe or Jane on the street like you do. Um, you know, you're known for the great big events that you covered, but, but really the people stories that you tell are amazing. Um, last year in the city of Dayton, I mean, you were a big part of helping that city heal uh, through the tragedies that it had. So I think— you know, the idea of you still telling the stories uh, really touches people. And, um, you know, the fire is still in your engine. I really, really admire that. Uh, thank you. Thanks. I still I still like doing it. And, uh, yeah, la- last year was a special year with the Flyers after everything had happened in Dayton. And, and so I, uh, I yeah, I, I like doing it. I'm going to try to keep doing it for a little bit yet. But, you know, as soon as uh, – it, it's a little tougher as you get older, but there's still – like I said, it still juices you when you get a nice story, you know. Mm. Now, I have one last story I want to ask you. All right. You're still doing it. You have a great story about a UConn basketball player. Uh, University of Connecticut women's basketball, one of the great sports programs in any sport in our lifetime. <laughs> and you had a great story. Yeah. And we're going to end with this. All right. So I, I, we had a uh, uh, girl from Dayton. Uh, Tamika Williams, who played for UConn, and she was one of the stars on those teams that had Sue Bird and Swin Cash and all these great players. And so they were coming to Dayton to play something. And so I wrote this gigantic, probably, I don't know, 80, 90 inches on on Tamika Williams. And they ran it on one A1. And uh, and it had all these different names in there, you know, in a, if you get 90 inches, that's I don't know how many words. That's quite a few words. 2,700 words or something. So there's a lot of Villanova and Swin Cash and Asia. uh, What was her name? I forget. But so anyways, we had like a new, after I turned the story in, we have a, it went to sports to edit it. And then they sent it over to a city side person to edit it. And it was like some young person. And back then it was the days where you still had like, spell check, right? So when she finished with the whole story, she now is going to hit spell check just to catch like if you spelled some word wrong. But of course, all these names like Asia, uh, a girl that spells her name like A-S-J-A or something or Villanova, these things don't pop up. Gino Oriema doesn't the pop up. Yeah. yeah. So when you get it, it'll give you the next closest word, right? What you're supposed to do, there's two boxes. You either hit replace and it puts that other word, or you just put skip. 
you know, which she should have hit skip on East Coast because I said Gina Oriema's name probably 30 times in, in the column. She got confused and hit replace. <laughs> so, and it got in the paper like that. She was the last read. So Gina Oriema's name, if you do this, you can try it on your spell check at home. It becomes a word that means urinary tract infection. And so it was urethra something, I don't know. But <laughs> so it was, so for 30 plays, plus every other name was, uh, all these other names had just these oddballs, like a person from Mars came in and just threw some words in there. So there was probably 100 mistakes in the story. The next day, I'm reading it at my kitchen table, and I, I, I swear to God, I shot coffee, came right out my nose. I just went... I can't tell you what I said, but Gina Oriama, uh, uh, urinary tract infection. Jesus Christ! So I, I, uh, you know, call, I call up, make a big stink, and all. And so, finally, uh, the, the next day they do rerun it, but they, they they put a box in there and put this story ran yesterday. Uh, without being edited or something like that. May it look like it was me again. And so I was, <laughs> but the worst thing that happens that night, uh, the night before it ran the next day, I'm down in a little newspaper bar right next to the paper. And I'm down there and I'm ticked and I've had like a few pops here and there. And also there's a talk show that calls from Connecticut. that they've, They're reading my story online and everybody's getting a big hoot about it. And so they want to talk to me live well, now this is 10 at night, and I've, I'm in no shape to be talking, and especially not on radio. And the young clerk goes, oh, he's not here, but he's he's down in the bar. I can give you his number, the number of the bar. So they call, uh, they call down to the bar, and the barman goes, Tom, there's a call for you. So I go over and I answer it, and he goes, you're live on, you know, something in Hartford, <laughs> and and like a fool, I should have hung up, but no, I tried to explain it. And uh, I just saw so I, I bossed it in the paper. I bossed it on the radio. And uh, so for a while after that, every time I saw Gene Oriama, he just looked at me and would shake his head. So, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess the lesson is always hit skip. Yeah, hit skip. Hit skip. When all, when all else fails, just hit skip. You can't screw up. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Tom. I think we're uh, I think we've covered way more ground than we anticipated. And, well, um, I really and appreciate this. <laughs> we had a lot of ground to cover, and you know, hey, we got rolling. So. All right. Listen, um, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, Tom. Thank you, man. I love you, brother. All right. Take care, right. buddy. Take care. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle, or padel as it's called in North America, 
This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!